Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we continue our Lessons from the Frontline series. We've talked about this show type before, but for some of our new listeners, the Lessons from the Frontline series offers a slightly different experience than our usual podcast. It's often more narrative in scope and form, and it focuses on providing practical advice and takeaways that center on real-life tough lessons other compliance professionals and regulators have learned on the front lines of our industry. Think of it like a fireside chat with a great storyteller. It's your opportunity to sit down with an industry expert, grab a hot cup of coffee, and just start talking about some crazy important issues that are affecting the investment management industry today. To help guide us through today's show, we welcome in Ed Wegener, the former Senior VP and Midwest Regional Director of FINRA, to discuss some real lessons learned on the front lines of the investigation and enforcement process. Before we jump into the conversation, however, I wanted to talk about an idea that I I think really demonstrates the value of these lessons from the front lines shows. The concept of ground truth is a term used in various fields to refer to information provided by direct observation, i.e. empirical evidence, as opposed to information provided by inference. Doing a quick Google search provides you with some other definitions, which include the reality of a situation as experienced firsthand rather than by report, and to confirm or validate directly especially by direct observation on the ground, rather than by interpretation of remotely obtained data. Part of the difficulty that many compliance officers and practitioners face in this industry is not just the technical aspects of a rule or the related legal analysis and interpretation. It's the application of the rule in real life scenarios. There are countless examples of rules and regulations that offer very well-intentioned guidance on a particular issue, but when applied in real life, lead to unintended and sometimes negative consequences at both a micro and a macro level. What I love about this concept of ground truthing, and that I'm hoping to continue to flush out in this Lessons from the Frontline series, is the first-hand experience and direct observations of our industry experts to help arm all of our listeners of this podcast with the tools and resources they need to tackle even the most difficult of compliance issues. And with that, let's go grab that cup of coffee with Ed. (laughs) We got 10 inches of snow where I live yesterday, so I could actually use something hot to drink. In today's interview section of the show, we are going to be looking at some of the lessons learned from the front lines of the FINRA examination and enforcement process. And with us to discuss these issues is an expert in that field, Mr. Ed Wegener. Ed is an innovative compliance risk management and supervisory controls expert with a deep understanding of federal securities laws and the rules of self-regulatory organizations, as well as technology optimization and risk mitigation. Prior to joining Oyster Consulting, 
Ed held several posts in FINRA, most recently as Senior VP and Midwest Regional Director. While he was there, he was responsible for the region's risk assessment, examination, and investigation programs. Ed was a member of the team that developed FINRA's risk-based examination program, and he developed and managed FINRA's first digital asset and cybersecurity examination programs. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Welcome to the show. Hey, Patrick. Thanks so much for inviting me. So you've probably heard a little bit about these lessons from the Frontlines podcast. One of the key things we're doing that's slightly different than maybe, say, our regular shows is we're we're speaking with experts in the field to talk about some of the real life lessons learned as they've been kind of in the trenches working with other firms or inside firms that they have worked at or just lessons learned from you know cases in the industry to really put ourselves in the shoes of the compliance officers in the shoes of the people that are trying to run these compliance programs and and what might be some practical takeaways best practices things that they can that they can learn as a result of these experiences so really appreciate you being on the show today and especially given your expertise in the area of the FINRA examination and enforcement process, I think one of the things that would be really beneficial for a lot of our listeners out there is to kind of walk through that process and and whether, of course, you know, today we're going to be focusing on FINRA, but whether you're a broker dealer or an RIA, I think a lot of the lessons and the types of things that you're going to be able to talk about, that you're going to be able to talk about are really going to translate well because they, they really would apply in almost any examination, but really appreciate that. And I think, one of the things that would be really beneficial just at the start would be to talk to us a little bit about what type of process is involved even before enforcement gets started, right? So we're in the investigation process and talk to us about what has to happen before uh, those findings can turn into enforcement actions. Sure. And, you know, I, I want to echo what you say. I think um, while, you know, I was with FINRA for 22 years, have a really good understanding of their programs. Um, I think that, you know, the approach that they take is not dissimilar from other regulators. So I think you can glean a lot out of this process and apply it to things like registered investment advisors. My background was in the risk monitoring and the exam program. So um, that's the perspective that I bring to this. But in working with risk monitoring and examinations, we also had a, we dealt with enforcement a lot. So I can speak to sort of life cycle, starting with the examination program and through to uh, the enforcement side. I guess maybe taking a step back in terms of the examination process, it differs a little bit depending on what type of examination you're talking about. So that might be a, a good first place to start. And examinations can generally come in in two primary types, and that would be um, a routine examination, which is a risk-based exam where the examiners go out to test controls, sample, do data analytics, which we'll talk about later, and really kind of do a nuts and bolts review of the firm's programs, their, their processes and procedures, and then test to see if there's any rule violations. Another exam type are our cause examinations or FINRA's cause exam. Uh, program. And those are examinations, really more investigations into potential um, 
problematic activity that they've learned of through things like customer complaints, registered reps who've been terminated for cause, regulatory tips, those types of things. A third thing that I'll, I'll talk about, it's not really in the examination program, but it's important to this, are enforcement investigations. Sometimes investigations will start directly in enforcement, and those usually are things that are, are more significant. They might be industry-wide issues or um, uh, issues that are particularly risky or have um, uh, some import to them. Um, so those are the three main types of examinations that can happen. I think the way findings come from those exams will be different depending on the type of exam you're talking about. But once an exam, once a finding has been made, the process from that point forward is generally pretty similar. With the cycle examinations, um, like I said, those are risk-based. So a big question that comes in there are the, is the scope and the frequency of the exam. So the first thing they have to decide is, are they gonna do a cycle examination? And when they decide they're gonna do a review, what are they gonna look at? And FINRA relies very heavily on its risk assessment process, which has developed over the last um, several years. So their risk analysts, which used to be called regulatory coordinators, they conduct ongoing day-to-day -day assessments of a firm's risk, the types of activities they're engaged in. They look at data like complaints and things like that. And well, based on those assessments determined, we think that we need to go out to this firm this year. And then once they do, they, they'll decide, okay, based on what we're seeing, the type of activity the firm's engaged in, maybe patterns of complaints or other data that they're seeing, these are the things that we think that we need to look at. Um, and that will really um, shape the, uh, the scope of the examination. Um, for a cause examination, it's different, right? Because they generally know what the scope is gonna be based on what the allegation is. Same thing with an enforcement investigation. So there's not as much time spent assessing the scope or you know, trying to figure out where to look or where violations might be in a cause exam or an enforcement investigation. Those usually are known, it's just a deep dive into the circumstances to determine whether there was a violation. So on the cycle examinations, you know, it's a lot of sampling and testing and assessing controls. If there's um, a potential violation that's identified in any three of those types of examinations, the next step would be to gather evidence to determine whether there is a violation. And that's through looking at documents, reviewing procedures, looking at the supervision, interviewing key personnel, in some cases, interviewing the customers or the investors that were involved, sure. and then taking all that information and assessing, based on the particular violation they're trying to prove, can, with the evidence, can we prove the elements of those violations? So for example, with something like suitability, which um, you know, is evolving into Reg BI, you know, was there a re recommendation made? And do we have evidence to support that? You know, was it uh, a reasonable recommendation based on the customer information that was known? All of that information is gathered, put together. And then if, a, if the evidence points to a rule violation, then the next question is, what do we do with that? Um, do, you right. know, how do we want to dispose of that violation? That's great. Uh, well, one of the things that you mentioned that sparks an idea in my head and that it relates to actually, you mentioned how, you know, you might be testing for suitability now, kind of, again, part of the Reg BI, you know, recommendation process. What about the use of data analytics or when it comes to, you mentioned that FINRA would do, you know, a large swath of kind of information gathering. I imagine that, FINRA's ability to leverage technology and to leverage the data that it's going to be collecting in a circumstance like that would be incredibly influential throughout the kind of investigative process. 
and the types of things you might be looking for, or the types of techniques you might try to employ separately. And I guess I, maybe this is a follow-up question. If, that, if that's the first part of the question, one, would you agree with that? And then two, you know, when it comes to like a new piece of regulation, like regulation best interest, you know, do you think that FINRA in the investigative process, have they already started to adapt tools and technology to gather the information they're looking for on something like that, that would be, you know, with regard to suitability, with regard to the application of Reg BI. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that's definitely been evolving over the last several years. FINRA's always had access to a lot of data and information through things like filings, things that are out on the, the um, public internet, other information, news sources that they have. They also have the ability to ask firms for data and information. And so the information's always been there. And then over time, the technology and the tools to analyze that data has really gotten more sophisticated, as have the exam staff and the, and the um, risk monitoring staff that are reviewing those things. So that's all sort of come together. And FINRA's really been spending a lot of time in assessing how best to leverage that data and those analytical tools. And it continues to evolve. So I'm talking now, I've, I've been away from FINRA for just over a year. So it's probably evolved quite a bit since I was there. But when I was there, there were certain things that they were looking into and, and developing tools around. Part of it has to do with that risk assessment process that I talked about. So they take in an, a lot of data. They look at that data against the particular risks that they're concerned about. And um, they do data analytics around those risks and say, you know, these are the firms that we're concerned about. These are the reps we're concerned about. These are the branches we're concerned about. And that helps drive where they want to focus their time. When they do conduct an examination, they are have been getting really good at taking that in, taking information that they gather through things like electronic blotters, putting that through their analytical systems and using that to identify areas of potential focus. And so the way we used to think about it was it's trying to find needles in haystacks and the analytics aren't going to necessarily find the needles for you, but they're going to tell you that if there are needles, they're probably in this part of the haystack, right? So they've been getting really good at doing that. And there are certain areas where I think that they've used that, the, that data analytics really well. And it's the kind of stuff that quantitative analysis can really help. You know, they use it to identify things like churning, over-concentration, unsuitable share class recommendations. These yeah. all sound familiar to people, I'm sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, overcharging, uh, discretion without written authorization. All of these are types of things that you can, like, based on the activity that's going on, that you can model and, and determine, hey, there's activity that might be indicative of this stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's going on, but it's pointing them to there might be an issue here. So one of the, the benefits to the industry is that when FINRA comes out, they're not spending a lot of time on site, as much time on site. And when they are on site, they're not just doing blind random sampling, trying to find issues. They're usually coming in and they're very narrow in what they want to look at. The problem for the industry is that they're narrow because they've already decided to identify potential problems. So they're getting very good at identifying where those, those problems might be. So I think that it's, it's made them become much more efficient and in the process become much more effective. And again, it's going to continue to evolve. Oh, sure. Sure. But I, I think your point is well taken in that whatever information FINRA can use to then better inform 
like you said, where they're going to look or where they think if there is a probability of a higher risk area or a violation of some kind, they have some information, some metrics already that they've seen that say, hey, when you go in to do the investigation, you should look in you know, X, Y and Z, because if there's going to be an issue, it's probably going to be in one of those areas. Right. And what this has resulted in, you know, especially on the um, cycle exam side or the routine exam side is they spend a considerable amount of time before they come out on site doing reviews. So you're, you're, in your examination, they're going to start requesting that kind of information electronically right off the bat. And it'll be several weeks before they come out on site. It's because they're running those that analysis. That's stuff that they used to do on site. I remember when we used to conduct an examination of the first time I looked at any record was when I showed up on site and it was in a box on the conference table. Those days are over. I mean, you start <laughs> right. stuff right away and doing so electronically. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really helpful. And, and of course, ma makes all the sense in the world because, again, you would want FINRA to be in a position where they're going to be able to use their resources most efficiently and most effectively. And it actually probably honestly, probably helps the industry too. It probably helps the firms in the way that they're not just going to get hit up potentially with a bunch of kind of other types of document requests or other types of things that may be, you know, outside of the scope of something or that, again, that FINRA feels the firm probably has a good handle on. Rather, FINRA is only going to probably be looking at the requested documents for areas that they might need to do a little bit further digging. So, yeah, absolutely. And another thing that I've been particularly pleased with as, as this has evolved is the review of the controls that firms have in place over the areas of risk that they're looking at. When I first started a long time ago at FINRA, you know, we would take a, a set of supervisory procedures and make sure that they had procedures for each of the areas that we were concerned about and that they fit a particular format. They moved away from that and are focusing more on the strength of those controls and how effective they might be. So there's going to be a lot more questions on an examination about, about the controls, but then also observing a firm conducting those controls. Like, show me how you use this exception report. How do you follow up on it? Um, and I think that's, that's terrific because that's what's most important. I think when, as an examiner at FINRA, what I really want to know is not particularly what I find on the examination, but when I leave the firm, what are they going to be doing to make sure that they have controls over the risks that I'm concerned about? And I think that that's really been a significant shift in focus. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's then move. So now FINRA has gone in, right? They used, they sent questions ahead of time. They were able to gather that data, probably again, use some you know data analytics or other tools to help them vet and figure out where they wanted to investigate. They went in, they found some things that maybe didn't exactly pass muster. Right. And so now we're getting towards the conclusion of the investigation. What happens next? How does the process work where the determination gets made between whether or not, you know, we're going to conclude the exam and we're going to go one direction or, you know, we need to escalate this to enforcement? Right. And, and again, this is an area that continues to evolve this process. But, um, you know, I hear this a lot when somebody is getting an examination, whether it's a cycle exam or a cause examination, everybody's very concerned about the findings and whether those findings are going to result in an enforcement action. And so, there, I mean, there are a couple of things that I would say to that is to, to not to panic uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, most findings from an examination don't result in a referral to enforcement. I mean, when I say most, I mean most findings don't result in a uh, referral. And there are 
a significant number of checks and balances and reviews that are done of the examinations and of the findings before um, they're finalized and before they're ever um, discussed with enforcement. So on both of those fronts, I think that that's good news for the industry. With respect to you know the findings and, and the determination of whether they might ref, uh, be referred to enforcement, like I said, most don't end up in a referral to enforcement, most end up in something like a cautionary letter. And what FINRA is really looking for there are for firms to demonstrate that they fixed the issue and that they've developed strong procedures around where that issue may have been. One of the things that we always counsel firms to do is during the examination, as soon as they hear that something might potentially be a violation, is to start working right away on a response and, and um, updating those procedures and taking corrective action, because that really goes a long way with the exam team and, and them determining how they're going to dispose of the examination. If they see that there was a problem and the firm was proactive in addressing it, that's going to, uh, I think, send the right message. If something does get identified um, for a potential enforcement referral, um, one of the first things that happens is there's a, a meeting between, and this is typically what happens, there'd be a meeting between the enforcement staff and the examination staff and their management to discuss uh, two primary things. One is, do we have the evidence to support the rule violation? That's important. They look at the elements of the violation and say, um, you know, is there evidence to support this? And what I found was, in my experience with enforcement, is they were very tough critics. They wanted to make sure that any case that they were going to bring, that there was strong evidence to um, uh, to support it. And there were times, plenty of times, where we would bring something to enforcement, and then after discussing it, either the the evidence wasn't there or the evidence wasn't strong, and we decided that you know we would take uh, either a cautionary action or the, the matter would be filed without action. So there are opportunities where those decisions change after you've met with enforcement. But once they've decided that the um, the violation is supported by evidence, the next step is to determine whether it's something that should be referred to enforcement. And that is an assessment of things um, that we consider the aggravating and mitigating factors, like how bad is it or how not bad is it? Um, and so things that we would look at would be things like the, the amount of customer harm involved in the violation, sure. whether the violation um, appeared to demonstrate that there was um, a systemic supervisory issue with respect to the firm. Sure. Um, another area would be um, if there were repeat findings. If you go on an exam and you find something, you come back out and they haven't fixed it, it's going to escalate. Whether it escalates to enforcement or not depends. But, you know, we've seen cases where, you know, on the third go around, things still haven't been addressed and those things are likely, those things likely would have ended up in enforcement. Yeah, that's really interesting. One of the things, I mean, so I want to, I want to dig into that a, a little bit and talk about some of that additional review that's happening to look at things like the, you know, level of customer harm or if there's any recidivism that's present there, you know, like one that that's just, I think that's really interesting. And it makes me think, you know, in addition to the factors that you mentioned, if a firm say, you know, in the course of the investigative process, e even if there were findings that, you know, potentially caused customer harm or something, you know, had, had similar type severity, but, you know, would the issue of, of like intent 
or reckless disregard versus negligence or any kind of would would that be included in that analysis where obviously i guess if somebody is intentionally doing harm that's going to be probably a pretty easy you know a pretty easy escalation but where maybe it was either reckless disregard or if it was negligence and if it was negligence i guess then would you also potentially look at well was it negligence in that the firm had the right internal controls set up the person just negligently missed the signs that sh- that were showing them hey you should go check this out or hey there's an issue here or, or or you know similarly was the negligence that you know they had some controls in place but just not the right controls in place yeah yeah you know i i'd say the answer to that is yes <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I don't mean to be flip about that, but yeah, all of those things were important. Um, and to some extent, it was important. I mean, you needed to determine whether that there was a violation, right? So some violations require intent, like fraud, right? Sure. So um, in some cases, you'd have to look, if you're going to prove the violation, you needed to prove intent. But in other cases, those are the things that we would look at in terms of um, aggravating and mitigating factors, either, you know, the the intent or the lack of intent, whether something was a simple mistake uh, or was it negligence um, or people trying to cut corners, all of those things go into and, and a lot of it is specific to the particular rule that's been violated. You know, those factors might change. But I think that the main takeaway from that is that there's a very thoughtful approach taken in assessing these things. And uh, a lot of consideration is given. The Another important thing to take away from that is that because there's that thoughtful approach, it's very important through the process to provide the regulators with whatever information might inform that consideration. And there are a lot of opportunities to do that. And speaking of the exam process, one of the things that I should have mentioned is there's always a um, letter that goes out and says, here's what we found, provide your response, both in terms of why did this happen and what have you done to fix it? What I would find sometimes is firms weren't didn't provide a ton of information. And I would encourage firms to provide whatever information that you think might mitigate a finding because it's not just arguing whether a finding a violation occurred or not. It's if it did occur, here are some things for you to consider in determining what you're going to do with that. The earlier you can get that information in and plead that case, the better. So there'll be opportunities both before something gets referred to enforcement as well as after it gets referred to enforcement. But the critical thing is making sure that any information um, that you have that you think would be helpful, that you should supply it. My sense has always been as a regulator, I was always I'd much rather have that information and have it early than get surprised by it late. And I think it's fair to consider all the information that's out there before we make those types of decisions. So and that's what I find with both, you know, the exam program at FINRA currently and their enforcement program. They want to hear those things. Yeah, no, I I think that's that's really, really important. I mean, I, you know, that your your comment sparks a couple of things in my mind. One, um, uh, I think there is uh, an inclination among some firms, if they have an issue or a problem that, and they, they recognize maybe, oh, you know, maybe there is an issue or a problem that they want to go completely radio silent, right? Because they, they feel like if they, they talk about what happened or give any indication into their rationale of why they were doing a certain thing in a certain way, certain process or, you know, operational activity, 
that they're somehow going to be turning over the evidence that's going to, you know, indict them or convict them entirely rather, rather than looking at it as like, Hey, again, part of the benefit of if you have to go through the process of an examination is that oftentimes it does help you improve your compliance program. Right. And you are able to enhance certain areas that that, again, only helps to build and make your compliance program that much better. So I, I think that's an important comment. The other thing it kind of reminded me of, though, too, is, look, I, I was an English nerd and then <laughs> went to law school. So the math stuff left me a long time ago. But I do remember when I had to do mathematics that <laughs> that sometimes I would get partial credit for showing my work if I applied the right analysis in certain areas, but maybe ultimately got to the wrong. The, the my My final answer might not have been correct, but I would get partial credit because at least I had done some of the stuff in the way that I was supposed to. Exactly. I mean, you take supervisory procedures as, as an example. You had mentioned that earlier. I mean, to have procedures that are deficient in a particular area is different than not having any procedures at all or having really, really weak procedures. So if you have procedures, maybe they weren't you know, entirely up to snuff and, you know, it comes down to reasonableness and you want to make your case about whether you think they're reasonable or not, but show what you have and show what you did. If, you know, sometimes there's, you know, somebody forgot to do something that they were supposed to. And so, and, and if you were to say, Hey, look, this person was supposed to do this. They didn't do it. We didn't catch it, but here are the controls that we're putting in place now to make sure that that doesn't happen again. That can help. Sure. All right. So, so that's all. I think that's really helpful information. I especially like the fact that it shows a lot of the thoughtfulness, I think, behind b before you have an investigation that then leads to enforcement. So let's go to the enforcement side of things. And with regard to the escalation of certain findings, you know, in your time at FINRA and some of, I'm sure, the many, many different, you know, cases or investigations that, that kind of came to your desk. What were some of the common findings that you would recall really being a, a frequent player or something that kept coming up with enforcement that you thought, oh, you know, oh, yeah, that, there's a finding that's likely going to get escalated to enforcement? You know, what I found when I, when I would go out and do speaking events for FINRA, you know, I, I always had a lot to talk about because people always wanted to hear about common findings and what are our priorities. And, you know, I love the fact that FINRA has been very transparent recently and have been issuing their priorities letter and their common findings report, but it, it made it tough for me to talk about anything that people hadn't already seen before. And that, that's what I thought, you know, that's what I'm seeing here. I mean, we, we started preparing for this shortly before FINRA issued its, its priorities letter and it combined it with the um, common findings report this year. And it was interesting, the things that we talked about that I had seen in my work with FINRA, it's very similar to the things that you see in these common finding reports and you know what they publish. So FINRA is being very transparent, which I think is a, is a great thing because it gives firms an opportunity to look at their own systems and say, hey, is this an area where I might be weak? So I definitely encourage people to, to use the report that way. This year, it was interesting in that a number of the areas that were identified in the in, in the priorities letter um, were areas that you'd um, seen before. Um, you know, think of cybersecurity, AML, outside business activities, variable annuities. These are perennial things that are on on the um, report. Some new things that I found interesting, um, of course, Reg BI. 
um, was on there. But was I think most interesting about that is it's clear that like the SEC, FINRA is going to be moving away somewhat from the good faith efforts types of reviews that they've been doing um, and focusing on conducting uh, much more comprehensive reviews of Reg BI. Another area that I found interesting is the number of times they use digital in the report. So clearly there is a focus on security or broker dealers and their use of uh, digital technologies. They talked about the use of digital apps, uh, digital communication platforms, uh, blockchain-based digital assets. And um, interestingly enough, and I want to do a, a more research into this, but game-like features on digital platforms. Finally, the other thing that I saw that was new um, outside business activities, like I said before, is something that you'd, you'd commonly see in these findings. But the fact that they mentioned firms assessing public information about PPP loans to assess possible unreported outside business activities, I found to be an interesting approach, and I think is garnering a lot of uh, attention. Yeah. Um, some of the things that 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 were um, that I would commonly see um, in the exam program and things that would get referred to enforcement. One area um, is excessive trading or churning. Uh, again, like I said before, that's an area that would come up a lot when we would do data analytics. It's very easy to spot firms that have or activity that has high turnover ratios or cost to equity. But what FINRA looks at is, you know, they'll assess how firms are monitoring that activity and determining whether they should follow up. And then when that activity alerts, how they're following up on those things. Um, one thing with Reg BI that I think has been a, a very powerful tool now for regulators and was a frustration before Reg BI. But currently with Reg BI, the regulators no longer have to prove that there's de facto control in proving those cases. And that had always been, you know, a difficult challenge. Um, so I think that that's going to make it much easier for them to bring those cases. It's already easy for them to spot potential cases of excessive trading. Variable annuity exchanges are another one. This was mentioned in the in the um, priorities report. Um, they want to know how firms are assessing exchange recommendations. Importantly, they're looking to see how firms are assessing for patterns of exchanges. So are they looking across transactions by reps or by branches and saying, hey, we're seeing some patterns that look like it might be indicative of exchange activity that we need to follow up on. And then again, how they follow up on it. Outside business activities are always an area of focus, identifying how firms identify and approve outside business activities. Importantly, the assessment that firms do once they identify an outside business activity, looking for things like conflicts of interest and in private securities transactions. And then also assessing whether firms are supervising private securities transactions. Yeah, real quick, if I could jump in, I, I want to kind of dig into the outside business activities one a little bit, because you, you mentioned kind of, I think, you know, interestingly, in some of what Fender talked about in, in its priorities uh, for the year 2021 in that letter. And then obviously some of the stuff that you saw consistent consistently over time during your tenure at FINRA. But talk to me about on the outside business activities front, because there's a lot involved there, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot involved there. Talk to me a little bit about maybe some of the common findings that you saw in your time there in, oh, maybe a better way to frame it would be, what were some of the pitfalls? Sure. What were things that firms weren't doing that ultimately led 
to some of the issues that, that they experienced. And then I want to circle back and talk a little bit uh, about, you know, FINRA's restatement of their focus on the on the OBAs for the year 2021. Sure. And I, I think it's kind of a, a spectrum of activity that, you know, when it comes to outside business activities, things that we would see and then the level of concern or problem with those things. I mean, there's always the traditional, hey, somebody forgot to report an outside business activity. And depending on what that outside business activity was, it, it, sometimes it was fairly benign. Like if somebody's working as a bartender you know, on, on the weekends and not reporting that, get that reported, make sure that it's out there and then everything's fine. When it became a problem was when an outside business activity had a risky impact on the firm or the customers of the firm. And there were some things that I think that would heighten that, that concern or that risk. So for example, an unreported outside business activity that's investment related would generally, will definitely be you know, much more concerning than you know, the, the bartender job. What that activity was that was investment related, again, depending on, on the nature of that activity, it, it could ramp up the risk. So, for example, if the unreported outside business activity that's investment related related to real estate, if you're just you know buying homes and renting them out, that's one thing. If you're out raising money from people to invest in real estate assets and of course, that's probably a private securities transaction, and there could be a whole host of problems with it, like fraud. And that's what's important for firms to know. The problem that we would see with firms was being able to make that distinct distinction based on what they saw reported. So there were times where we would come in and say, they would say, oh, I have these real estate investments, and the firm would say, okay, that's fine. It's not securities related everything is good. And then you do a little bit of digging and you find out that that real estate um, business was pooling people's money and investing in real estate and required, you know, um, supervision, potentially um, putting those transactions on the books of broker dealer and potentially could have, you know, fraud related to it, depending on, you know, the nature of it. So those were where we see firms get in trouble. They really didn't understand the reported outside business activities and, um, and that caused problems. Another area that that's, gets a little bit of uh, discussion around it is just firms' abilities to identify unreported outside business activities. You know, what I hear from people is that if it's unreported, how am I supposed to know about it? And I think that's fair to some extent. But the question is, you know, what sort of red flags do you look for to determine whether there might be unreported outside business activities? Firms use questionnaires and things to ask proactively about that. And that's a good thing. Uh, but I think that's where FINRA's focus on these PPP loans is coming from. It's, hey, there might be information in there that might cause you to say there might be an unreported outside business activity. So you should consider looking at it. So I think what they want to do is they want firms to not just accept what's coming in, but to proactively be looking for indications of potential unreported activities. That makes complete sense, right? If it's it's one thing to say, how could I have ever known about XYZ activity because it was never reported? But now, I guess I suppose in some circumstances, you may have had other individuals who may be licensed representatives at your firm who, because they took a PPP loan for some other activity that they have, they would have had to publicly report that in order to get the money. And so you're now a little bit more on notice that, hey, there, there might be an issue here that, that I should look into a little bit further. Right. 
Yeah. So an, another item that strikes me that, that you mentioned and that I, I want to um, dig into a little bit as well was on, uh, you mentioned Reg BI and kind of the shifting away because it feeds in nicely, I think, to probably some some other areas that I'm, I'm sure are, are consistent escalation of finance. But like, you know, and you mentioned private securities transactions. Certainly that's going to be on an OBA as it relates to recommendations to clients you know, and, and like private placement due diligence type, type items. Talk to me a little bit, a bit about that and, and, and whether or not that was a finding that you would consistently see and tell me, how do you think now that regulation best interest and the reviews finders doing on that front where they're moving away from a good faith effort to, Hey, look, you need to make sure that you're in compliance with this. How do you see that kind of impacting that process? You know, it's interesting. I'm not sure that Reg BI is changing the landscape in terms of that from, from the perspective of really understanding the products that you're selling. I think there's always been that expectation, you know, whether it was reasonable basis suitability requirement or the, the care obligation with respect to um, Reg BI. But the, the important thing is that firms, before they start recommending products, that they understand those products, they understand the features and the risks, and that the people who are selling them understand them as well. And so it really is just highlighting the need for firms to have a really robust product due diligence program. And, you know, a lot of firms have uh, product committees or things that look across products, but making sure that you're looking at guidance like um, regulate, uh, regulatory notice 1022 that outlines these are the factors that you should be considering if you're going to be engaging in a, in a private placement when doing due diligence. There's other regulatory notices about just the process for assessing your product shelf. But that's that's critical because that's a first component when making a, a recommendation that's in a customer's best interest that you understand the products, you understand the features, you understand the risks, the customer understands all of those things, and that the recommendation that you're making is an appropriate one. So that's an area. Private placements are an area that FINRA has spent considerable amount of time looking at more so because the risk of potential fraud there. And um, so I, I think what they're going to look for when they review those things are, is it in compliance with Reg BI if you're making those recommendations? But what sort of due diligence have you done? And then also, you know, were there red flags that this might potentially be fraudulent? And, you know, looking at things like how were the proceeds intended to be used? What does the firm know about the actual use of those proceeds? Those types of things. So it's an important area. And again, this is one of those areas that continues to show up on the priorities list over and over again. Yeah. Were there any other items, again, just back in your tenure and your time at FINRA, were there any other kind of findings that you would consistently see other than some of the ones that we've already talked about that would often lead to going to enforcement and, and that type of escalation? Yeah, I mean, th there were a number of things where, where you, you definitely see patterns, some of which had to do with just some were footfalls, right? But they were what we would consider to be sort of risky footfalls. So for example, what we would see were in things like accommodation forgeries where um, reps would, you know, they 
Sure. Want the customer to have to sign a bunch of documents. So, and the customer left, so they would just go ahead and sign a document for the customer and stuff. And, and that was important because the things that they were signing and either signing that they had reviewed or signing to, to initiate a transaction were important for the customer to have seen. So we took those very seriously. Um, other things, um, one of the things that we'd see is discretion without written authorization, which seemed to be sort of a, just somebody, something that both reps and customers seem to think was okay, where, you know, that if the rep had an idea, you'd go ahead and, and place the trade, call the, the customer or not, and tell them that they had done so. Um, and the customers liked the rep, trusted the rep, and never said anything about it, which was great until one of those trades goes against them. And then they realize that they didn't authorize the trade. And the next thing you know, a complaint comes in. So those are things that we would see a lot. And, um, you know, we would always tell firms to remind their reps, you know, it might seem like the convenient thing to do, but you can get in a lot of trouble and nobody wants a black mark as a result of something like that. Um, it wasn't a headline grabbing type issue, but it was something that, you know, um, would come up often. Another thing that came up a lot is, um, borrowing and lending to and from customers. And we saw a lot of that. One of the things that a, a recent rule change that has come into effect that's similar to that, and I, I'm assuming that we might see a lot of focus on our um, positions of trust with customers. So things like acting as a, or being a beneficiary, being named a beneficiary, acting as a power of attorney or trustee. New rules have been um, written that, um, address those things. And so I anticipate that FINRA will be looking at that in their exam program. And it's one of those areas that there could be some really potentially problematic activity that's associated with that. So something good to look at. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to, I want to go back to the first part of that answer, just because I think that is such a fantastic answer. And, and that issue of firms in many instances, ultimately having some kind of footfall or ultimately having some kind of issue because they were trying to do like the best client service, right? They were trying to be over accommodating in certain situations or, or, you know, in their eyes, they were looking out for the interests of the client rather than burdening them with, you know, a couple extra signatures or, you know, whatever the, the, the steps might be, they would take it upon themselves to alleviate that additional burden. And, and then ultimately, Right. That's that's like as soon as you get off that train track of going down the consistent path for onboarding a new account. Right. Or in the example that you used, you know, placing a customer trade without checking with them first when you have you don't have that authority set up man, I just think that that's spot on. And so it's not always what people read in the papers about, you know, there being this very nefarious scheme involved and all this intent to defraud. I mean, look, sometimes it is that. And obviously when, when that occurs, we absolutely need to make sure that, you know, investigations occur and, and then enforcement is brought in and we are able to hopefully avoid that type of activity in the future. But oftentimes, too, it's where people were in their own mind thinking they were trying to do the right thing. 
by by the client or at least make the client's life easier but nonetheless you you end up with a result where there is violative activity and and getting the firm and the rep potentially in in a decent amount of trouble and and that's where we used to always talk to firms and, and really encourage them to train their reps on these types of things because it was it, we, i found those to be sad situations where a rep with a spotless record does something like this and then ends up with something on their U4 that they didn't intend, you know? And so the more you can tell people, Hey, you're, you're, it's, it's going to make things a little quicker, but it's not worth it in the long run because you could, you know, you could get one of these black marks. It's important to do that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. Well, I, I appreciate all of that feedback. And I, I uh, also am really thankful we got to dive into kind of some of the nitty gritty type stuff there. I think that'll be really effective for the little last bit of our of our show today. I want to pull back out a little bit into the macro. And this also relates actually to something that you mentioned during as it relates to the FINRA 2021 examination priorities Um, with regard to, you know, cybersecurity and technology governance and other types of requirements on that front. There have obviously I mean, just think about what has occurred in the last 10 years of our industry and the types of technological, you know, industry innovations that, that have been that have come about to help enhance uh, certainly the process of investigations and enforcement, but hopefully also some of the internal controls and other uh, you know types of compliance protocols that, that firms have in place. Talk to me a little bit about that. Talk to me about you know maybe other areas. What what are some areas where FINRA has has been focused on including the use of new tools and technology. And obviously, you know, I, I think cybersecurity and technology governance would be included in that, but I, I would just, I'd, I'd welcome your feedback. No, it's, it's a great question. And one of the biggest challenges because the pace of change in the industry has been crazy and which is a good thing, right? Because oftentimes these things are new innovations and things to make things better, right? But they do come they do come with certain risks and significant issues that can happen the more and more firms rely on technology. So there has to be a thoughtful balance between innovation and supporting that innovation and protecting investors and protecting you know market integrity. Um, one of the things that I did at FINRA towards the end of my time there was to work with the team that looked at digital assets as they were starting to um, uh, starting to come onto the scene. And that, that's one of those areas that I think that it's it's moving somewhat slowly, but I think I, I would instead of saying slowly, I would say it's moving in a thoughtful and measured way because of the difficulty that you have in applying rules and regulations that were written some time ago for traditional securities to these new, very exotic securities that, you know, look and trade differently than, you know, we, we've ever seen before. So I think that that's important. And so one of the things that I, I've really been happy with in terms of the regulators, FINRA and the SEC, is their focus on making sure that they had the right people with the right expertise looking at these issues. And I know FINRA has created an Office of Financial Innovation, and the SEC has put together their um, FinHub 
group. And I know both of those groups are very involved in things like digital assets and, and blockchain technology, but also looking just across anything when it comes to something new and dynamic and making sure that the regulators are both understanding and supporting that innovation, but also making sure that they're thoughtful in terms of investor protection and keeping the market safe. So those two groups have been doing uh, what I think is a terrific job. Another thing that that I know FINRA has been doing, and I, I understand the SEC has, is into their examination program. They've been bringing people with specific expertise, and one area um, is a great example of that is cybersecurity. I mean, the typical ex- person that you hire to be an examiner is not a technician, is doesn't understand the technology the way you need to if you're going to assess um, cybersecurity risks and those controls. So, you know, they've gone out and they've hired people who have that background, have that expertise, and they've been using them in such a way so that they can have influence on those reviews and help educate the regular examiners on the issues and risks that they need to be looking for. While at the same time, if the risk is such that they're actively involved in those um, reviews themselves. So that's been great. So I think what, what firms, if you haven't seen, you will see is the use of more expertise and people with uh, background and experience and issues coming in to assess um, particular areas like cybersecurity or digital assets or AML, things like that. Yeah, no, that's great. It actually reminds me of, of, of part of a conversation we had with Bruce Carpati and with Rob Kaplan back in episode five of the podcast. And they talked about some of the origins of the SEC's asset management unit and a big part of that. And you, you mentioned it. And I, I think, you know, I would applaud both regulators, the SEC and FINRA, for going down this path, but really developing some of that subject matter expertise in certain areas so that then they're able to really do a very constructive, deep dive and analysis of particular issues that are both pain points for the industry, but also might might highlight or demonstrate a, 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 a compliance issue or something that's occurring on that front. And then hopefully, you know, identifying it, mitigating it, trying to uh, remedy the situation and hopefully prevent it from happening in the future. Absolutely. So we'll get you out of here. I mean, one, I, I can't thank you enough for this fantastic insight into kind of the entirety of, of the process of both, you know, from the investigation side to the enforcement side and specifically the types of findings on the enforcement side that firms should really be cognizant of and, and be on the lookout for. Let's get you out of here with a couple fun questions. So we've been doing this with all of our guests and it's it's kind of nice. Again, look, we're all we're all continuing to navigate what is a very tumultuous environment. All right. So what's the best thing that you enjoyed watching over the last year, say, you know, Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, whatever it was, was there a particular series or show or movie that, that you really enjoyed? You know, it, it's funny. If, if you ask me at any given point, it's whatever I'm watching at that particular moment. Sure. And so I just transitioned. And one of the, one of the things that I find is interesting from a psychological standpoint is the feeling that I get when I finish a series and it's done. And I'm like, oh, now I got to wait for it, to, you know, for the next series to come. And so I just had that because I've transitioned. I, and this is going to be silly. It'll probably say a lot about me. But so I watched every episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine over the last several weeks. And I couldn't get enough of it. And I love that show. It's just so funny. Yes. 
And then I I did a 180. I I finished watching that. I had that depression. And then I sort of watched, I I just begun watching Killing Eve. And it's very disturbing and (laughs) funny, very disturbing. But, you know, I'll tell you that, you know, it is a way to kind of keep things going um, in, in these times. But I've really, you know, that's one thing that I've really enjoyed. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. That is a perfect answer. I also am a huge fan. My wife and I are both huge fans of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You know, every character in that show is fantastic and just so well-developed. I think I know somebody like every one of those. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Ed, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Really, really appreciate the uh, incredible insights. And we, we will definitely have to have you back here at some point. We can do a review when we look at, you know, maybe next year's uh, Fender examination priorities and see how things turned out over 2021. Well, listen, I really appreciate it. And before I go, I just want to do one plug for NSCP. We are going to, on March 9th, be doing a regulatory interchange with FINRA. So I'm going to be moderating two panels, um, both with FINRA senior um, risk monitoring exam staff. They're going to talk about the FINRA's recent transformation and um, the shift of their framework and talk about things like the priorities and and how their approach is changing now that they're doing things more on an industry type and industry based model. So it'll be an interesting discussion. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you for, you know, plugging that. Um, and absolutely for, for folks that are listening that want to hear an even deeper dive on the 2021 examination priorities and get to talk about all of its impact um, and how firms should prepare uh, their compliance programs over the course of the next year. Feel free to tune in to that regulatory interchange. Ed, thank you so much and uh, look forward to having you back on the show at some point. Thank you, Patrick. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Ed Wegener, for coming on the show to share some of his valuable lessons learned on the front lines of the FINRA examination and enforcement process. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. As part of a quick housekeeping note, Our final episode of Season 1 of the podcast will drop on Tuesday, March 2nd. Season 2 of the podcast will pick up sometime in mid-April, but the public version of this pod is going dark for a month, so we can record and produce a master class miniseries on regulation best interest. This five-part podcast miniseries with some of the leading experts in this space will only be available to NSCP members. So if you're not already a member of the NSCP, make sure you join so you can get access to all that fantastic content. In the meantime, please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. And for those Brooklyn Nine-Nine fans like Ed, Let me just say, nine, nine.